Welcome to the Broken Pie Chart Podcast, episode 135. I'm your host, Eric Moore, and this week we have back on the program uh, not too long of a gap between your last appearance, Jay, but it's uh, Jay Pestercelli, CEO and founder of Zega Financial, my part-time permanent co-host or something like that. How are you doing today, Jay? Doing great, Derek. Yep, glad to glad to be back. And Derek, before we even get into things, uh, I, I got to ask what you think about what happened on Monday. For those of you that uh, uh, you know follow uh, this, I guess it would have been Monday the twentieth. That would have been the date, and where uh, we got a little uh, concerns out of China. Right, a developer over there, Evergrande, was uh, worried about. Well, it turns out they didn't make any. Uh, they defaulted on some payments that they had due, right? And that concern of contagion flew into the U.S. markets. And I just got to know your thoughts about this whole thing. Oh, boy. All right. So, <laughs> yeah, it, it's really interesting. This isn't new. And um, I, I'll give you a little background on it. Not too much, just enough. And then I want to talk about the action we saw in the bonds, because I think watching the bonds tells you a lot. This, this all stems from, so China came out with what's called a, a three red lines policy. And UBS, uh, I, I pulled this up, they put out a piece in January. So this is back in January. And basically China came out and said, there, there's three sort of red lines. If you cross a, above, uh, I think they're limiting your access to debt. And so they said, okay, your, your liability to asset ratio of less than 70%, your net gearing ratio of less than 100%, and your cash to short-term debt ratio of less than one. By the way, what the heck is a net gearing ratio? Uh, I don't know why they call it that, but it's uh, long-term short-term debt plus bank overdrafts divided by shareholders' equity. So you have these three sort of, you know, it's all related to debt. And UBS states they did it to try and control housing prices, to manage land markets, and the idea is that, okay, you, you pull back on the, the availability or access to debt if some of these ratios, and, and it seems like it's, you know, wanted to force deleveraging to improve financial health. Okay, all that said, Jay, this is not new news. If you look at the bonds, the bonds started to fall as early as, I'd say, the first or second week in June. And even prior to this, and, and by the way, I mean, the, the yield to worst on these bonds was around 13% back in, in the fall of 20. And currently, the, the bonds are rated double C for anyone who doesn't know what those are. Uh, and, and by the way, they're trading at a price of 25. So 100 would be par 25. They're basically trading, Jay, as if, uh, you know, default is is imminent. Uh, I'm not saying that that's according to the rating. So my point of, of bringing this all up is I know this caused a big deal on Monday, but this has been, I mean, the bonds told you everything you need to know, Jay, but going back to, uh, to June, and this all stems from this new, you know, you, you clamp down on access to debt and, you know, it's a bigger thing. But Jay, I don't, I don't think, I think it's one of those situations where, you know, price Price really makes news, and then the media has to come up with a reason for why, you know, why it happened. So, yeah, I I don't think it's a big deal, Jay. But what do you think? Uh, I, I I agree with you. This was not anything out of the blue. 
the market has known about it for some time. I think it's the equity has been on the down slope for 12 months at this point, right? It's down something like 90%, right? It's, it's, and it didn't happen in one day. And so, yeah, it's one of those things that I, I also think that it's one. I wanted to get your take because you have a lot more insight into the bond market and, you know, what a $25 price on a hundred, you know, par bond means, right? You're only getting 25 bucks back for every hundred bucks you gave in, right? This is, this is what we call default risk, right? And, uh, you know, and I, I'm, I thank you for kind of sharing a little bit about that, but for when it comes to the U S markets, this was, this was noise to me, right? I mean, how, how could, let's, let's, let's be as theoretical as we could here, Derek, tell me how you get contagion in the U S markets from an Evergrande failure. Yeah, and I I don't I haven't done the work on this, but the 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 most obvious answer, the Occam's razor answer is are there US companies or banks that have lent to some of these uh these companies in China specifically, you know, in the land development. I mean, Evergrande is is 30% of the the residential and commercial real estate market in China. They have 300 billion in liability. So, I don't know, Jay, I mean, I I haven't done the work on this, but I guess that's how it happens, right? I mean, someone else is left holding the bag in other U.S. companies. I don't think I've read that yet, Jay. I don't know about you. Yeah, no, I haven't, I haven't seen anything like that. Financials didn't take an extraordinarily, you know, outsized hit uh, when this news came out. They were down with the rest of the market. Um, I was trying to think maybe, you know, because they're not paying for the material and equipment they're using, you get like, I don't know, an infection in Caterpillar, right? Because maybe they ordered some, you know, some backhoes and dump trucks that they're not going to use now. Or maybe it's, you know, they're not paying their copper or steel, you know, outstanding invoices. Or they're not paying the company they rented concrete, you know, uh, uh, material, concrete equipment from. So I, you know, it's just, it's, it's, you have to really stretch it, in my opinion, to, to make that connection. It's it's not the easiest thing for U.S. companies to you know be in China in the first place anyway. So, you know, I, I think it was you're right. It was pro, if I had to guess, the real push behind the sell off uh, on Monday was it, when the market was ready to go down. Right, we closed below the 50 day moving average on Friday. Um, you know, the market was kind of poised with a couple down days that hadn't reversed yet. The buy the dip hadn't happened yet. And it just kind of followed through on a Monday with some, you know, headlines that helped maybe push the futures down ahead of time and maybe freak some people out before the market opened. That's my two cents on it. Yeah, I think that's right. Now, you know, we, we're not addressing the, the effect. I mean, here's how you eventually maybe get contagion. I mean, I've seen some estimates that the, the stuff for the industries, and I, I guess they're a conglomerate. I mean, they do... I think they did electric cars. Somebody said they they sold that off. They do some other things, but their their primary thing is residential and, and commercial development. So if they're enough of a percent of GDP, and you know they default, plus you've got people. I don't know how it works. If if you put down money on a house and then they don't deliver the house, so there there's other things. Maybe if the Chinese market is affected, that bleeds over. But I mean, th- this reminds me, Jay, of. Do you remember when Greece was was a big deal, and and I want to throw a, a stat out to you, you know, Greece and they weren't paying their bills, right? Yeah, yeah. But was that like 2014, 2015? 
when CNBC was live over there and they showed the demonstrations and they were talking about, you know, bailouts and everything, their debt to GDP in 2014 was uh, 180%. Their debt Jet, debt to GDP in 2020 is 205%. So the debt to GDP has gone up, but you don't hear anything about Greece causing a, a global contagion anymore, do you? No, you, re- you really don't. I do remember that happened, right? They they limited uh, ATMs from only delivering 60 euros a day to people. And there was, there was you know, people were worried about just getting groceries, right? I, re- I remember when that happened. It was about a week, week and a half that that kind of situation last lasted. Interesting that doesn't seem to matter right now, does it? No, no. It matters, as, as you and I have said privately, but we'll say it publicly, stuff matters when, when it matters. Like when the market decides it matters and the media, the financial media sometimes decides it matters, it matters. Or at least it gives a good reason for why something happened when it's unexplainable otherwise. But um, I think we'll, we'll move on to our next topic, though. And I'm going to uh, we'll do a little, we'll call this, you know, I guess we didn't title it at the beginning of the show, but we want to do a little roulette wheel where we spin it and we sort of land on a topic. Uh, next one I'm going to land on, Jay, is is the Fed taper. Today, some news came out from Chairman Powell and they did their meeting and they did not, as expected, do anything with rates. They did say we might taper, quote unquote, soon, but not necessarily indicating when that is. The bond market, Jay, has uh, it is up higher than where it was? It, I'm sorry, the, the the rates. So looking at the interest rate on the ten year Treasury, uh, it was around 130 at the lows before the meeting. Now it's uh, it's popped to all the way to 1.33 percent on ten years. So you give the federal government your money for the next ten years, you get 1.33 percent a year. Jay, the bond market is not necessarily, quote unquote, freaking out over this, but uh, taper soon. Any reaction to this one? Yeah, so I take my cue from the bond market reaction. Uh, it's probably one of the largest markets in the world. And, and the reaction is muted, to say the least, especially on a Fed day. So nothing, it looks like so far, uh, you know, the, uh, the meetings aren't over yet. This information just came out so far. Uh, no surprises. Uh, the market is digesting this information well. Um, even the talk of tapering in you know this year isn't really uh, causing any any panic, uh, causing people to uh, sell off their bond holdings. I, I I'd like to talk about what tapering means though for a minute, right? It's um, I think when people think taper. They think, oh, the Fed is becoming a little more hawkish. And, well, you probably have to taper before you raise rates. All the taper means is they're just a little less dovish, right? They're going to buy a little less, but they're still buying and purchasing bonds every month. It's still a very dovish disposition to have uh, when you are, you know, purchasing bonds, purchasing outstanding debt. And, you know, I think the market is still happy that that will continue and, you know, maybe they'll start to talk about, I mean, they haven't said when they'll slow down their purchasing, which is another way of saying taper. They haven't said when, but soon. I think the headline was soon. I'm not, not sure how to, how to interpret that. But, you know, so far the market has had very, very little reaction. At first, the equity markets liked it. It's hard to tell tick by tick what's going on because there's usually a an initial move and then a head fake the other way and then a reversal. Like, 
let, let's get through the day. This information is relatively new, but it doesn't look like it's upsetting financial markets at all. The Fed is doing what the market is expected the Fed would do. I think that's an important point you make because they are buying, what is it, $120 billion every month between MBS, mortgage-backed securities, and treasuries. And so, you know, you could buy just a little bit less every month, but still be buying bonds because they buy bonds because uh, they want to help not only support the market, but they also, the idea is supply and demand. You buy more, you cause the price to go down. But I think that's an important point. And I'm, I'm looking at uh, my Bloomberg app and uh, may soon be warranted is now the, the quote on there. So may soon be warranted. So not warranted yet to taper, they're saying, but soon maybe. It soon may be. Um, it's kind of like, remember the, the George Carlin bit where he, he's on the plane and the captain comes on and he says, uh, you know, please remove all items you may have brought on board. He's like, I may have brought my tuba. I'm not sure. But, uh, <laughs> you know, that whole comedy bit, it's a classic one. Google it. If, but yeah, I mean, they're not saying yet. And then the other thing, I guess, that came out is projections show officials evenly divided on a 2022 rate hike. Um, that could be December 22, for all we know. I haven't dug into the the actual projections yet. But um, yeah, I mean, I, I think I think that's an important point. The other thing I'd I'd like to point out is, you know, with the there is some the, the reverse repo overnight reverse repo market, which is where the Fed takes its bonds off its balance sheet and exchange those for cash and mostly, let's say, financial institutions, money markets who who can't hold cash, they need collateral to uh, to put on the books. Um, they're they're at one point three trillion now. And so some of this has to do with the debt ceiling because they can't issue quite as many bonds as they maybe normally would. So I don't know. I mean, maybe the maybe there's enough demand just by looking at that overnight reverse repo market that if they reduced their rate of purchasing, as you put it, good way of putting it, uh, maybe the market can just absorb this. I don't know, Jay. Any thoughts? Um, you know, the 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 repo market is one of the one of those those markets that they that the Fed significantly supports uh, because they have to, right? It's kind of the the the, the uh, I probably shouldn't use this term the ground zero for Fed rates, right? And um, it, when when I think about uh, how all of this trickles out to the to the rest of the market, you're right; they are you know managing the the effective rate, right? That's that the market is experiencing. But when you start to move out on the curve, Derek regardless of what the Fed says, the market will start to formulate its own opinion and tell you. And the 10-year is, is no better place than the 10-year to watch uh, how the market is reacting. And so while I, I understand and value the significance of the $1.3 trillion in the repo market, to me, it's still about the 10-year, about you know the anticipated inflation, which I, we didn't even get into that right now. Um, uh, but it, it's, it's, it's where the market is projecting rates to go and you know, I I got to tell you, I'm 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 surprised at how suppressed it remains all of this time. Um, you know, you and I have had different discussions about inflation and how that's going to drive that. And Fed, I heard they mentioned a little while ago that they continue to think the the elevated rates are are transitory, and we can talk about that in a moment. But you know, when I think about how the bond market is reacting here, um, it tells us that there's no real concerns. It also tells me they feel like growth is going to slow down as well, right? So there's a little bit of a, you know, 
a double-edged sword here where growth is probably going to slow down, which is why rates are lower. Oh, but they're also not going to raise rates quickly, which is why rates are lower. So it's an interesting dynamic right now. Uh, to me, you know, let, let, use that 10-year as kind of your benchmark as to determine the risk slash safety of the bond market. Time and time again, I, I think the bond market has told us what was actually going on cutting through the headlines. And I think that's an important point to make because the bond markets, you know, people are actually voting with their dollars and it, it could be sovereign wealth funds. It could be the Fed, uh, but a lot of individuals, a lot of institutions. And that is the ultimate mechanism. Uh, what one of my guests uh, two weeks ago, Marcel Benjamin quoted, I think it was Graham or Dodd said what the, the market's a weighing machine or a voting machine. I think I got it wrong that week too, but um, but I, I agree. I mean, it's if if we if the market thought that with well, the statement today or, or we're going to taper soon or rates were going to be risen eminently, I would have expected to see a, a surge up in rates, and, and we're not seeing this. You did mention the economy, though, Jay. <clears throat> Excuse me, and and I think we'll we'll maybe go there, spin the wheel there next. Uh, you mentioned slowing growth. And one of the things that I follow is I follow what's called the the Atlanta uh, GDP now, and uh, anybody can Google that. It's a nowcast, and so when when I I'll mention it, but I, I do want to preface it. A nowcast is simply right now, um, meaning as every bit of data comes in, it adjusts the GDP estimate. In this case, it's for Q3. And so we had housing starts, I think, what, yesterday or today? And so Friday, when it uh, it gets updated again, I think it's usually on Fridays. Uh, nope, 27th is the next update. So the next update will account all of that information. Jay, the, the GDP now estimate used to be above six. The blue chip consensus was at one point above seven. Uh, that's the range of the top 10 and top uh, top 10 and bottom 10 average forecast. Okay, there we go. Jay, that has come down though. Now the estimate is down to 3.7% for the third quarter. Um, does that indicate growth is slowing or um, what else are you seeing in the market um, just generally? Well, that certainly that is lower than the first half of the year, if they're projecting a 3.7. Of course, the housing data was very strong uh, uh, yesterday, right? Everything was up, project, you know, the new starts, permits, all of it was up. Uh, so that's great, right? That, is, that's, that bodes well for the economy. But, um, you know, to be, to be on 3.7 is still not awful, Derek, right? We've had the nice rebound in GDP, you know, coming off of, you know, that Q2, Q3 of 2020, right? That's um, uh, starting to look like it's it's almost in the rearview mirror uh, with us when you look at year over year comparisons. And so um, I, I would I would I would say that if that was sustainable, the market is going to like that kind of a level. But appreciation should not be expected at the rate that we've just gone through. You know, I, I said this a million times and it was quoted back to me recently at a conference by uh friend of mine named John, that there's, I always say there's two things that move the markets, it's interest rates and corporate earnings. Higher GDP definitely helps corporate earnings. Um, and so when you when you look at, uh, you know, where the, let's tie back to the bond market for a moment, right? If the bond market thought there was going to be a lot of growth 
they would expect rates to go up faster, right? So this this reduction down to, you know, from 6 down to 3.7, 3.8 is, well, it's still good news to me. It's, um, it's, it's not nearly as bullish. And I, I, I hate when people say this, well, the easy, easy money's already been made in the market. I don't know. It hasn't been easy for anybody to, to put money to work. I mean, we do, and you do, Derek, right, as a, as a regular process because we're not timing the market. But I don't know. I don't feel like the easy money was made, but it probably was already. And so now we may get a little chop, but still, even at, you know, anywhere now that 3.8 range, 4% range is pretty good GDP growth, right? I mean, before all of this happened, people would have been thrilled at 3.8 GDP growth, right? Oh, yeah. I mean, I, if I look back and uh, I'm, I'm doing this on the fly, by the way, a, a point I think uh, before I lose my train of thought on it, uh, the bonds, one of the, the tells that, that growth is slowing is when you look at not only the 10-year, but the 30-year bond is 1.84%, the yield. And so, I mean, that it's a, it's a back of the napkin, back of the envelope, quasi growth projection with rates, right? Because that's so, and I, and I think there's been some flattening in the curve as well. Uh, but back to your GDP point, I mean, I, I, I got to look it up here. I, I should have this on uh, at, at the ready, but I, I didn't think of making this point before we went to broadcast, nor did I necessarily know all the headlines. Uh, but I believe during the Obama administration, over the eight years, it was about 1.9%. I could be wrong in that, but I, I don't think I'm too far wrong. No, you're not yeah. too far off. I thought it was around two. Yeah. So, I mean, that's if, if uh, and 3.7, just so everybody knows, that's not a year over year. The way that works is you look at the growth from, uh, from the end of Q2 to the end of Q3, right? The full quarter. And then you annualize that. So we say 3.7%. That's an annualized number. Uh, but that's a real GDP growth. That doesn't, that uh, accounts for inflation. And so, yeah, Jay, I mean, if we got growth, I think, you know, two and a half percent sustained or three percent sustained, that would be way above what we've seen for many years. So I agree with you, Jay. Yeah. Um, I, I uh, you know, as you're, if you're, if, I don't know if you're digging into the data a little more there, Derek, but one of the things that I, I think about when it, when it, when it comes to these kinds of projections, right? I mean, the, uh, it's great that the, the, the now data that you're talking about is there. Um, there are trends that you want to watch for, right? When it comes to, uh, GDP, and uh, when you you know you look at the the longer term charts, and you see the dip that we saw, and then the recovery out of 2020, um, you know you 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 think that the U.S. is still in a very robust uh, position, right? It's it's uh, and so with the fears of, and I know this isn't on the roulette news uh, headline yet, maybe it will be as we're going through, but the fears that uh, COVID and the Delta variant will slow GDP seem to have, you know, subsided a little bit. I think we've, we've figured out that we can have growth while we're fighting off uh, this virus. And, and the markets have, you know, they were, they were kind of right about this, right? They were right that economic activity will continue uh, despite that kind of a headwind of the national health crisis. So I know you've got a lot of opinions about that, Derek, and I know I'm throwing this one off the cuff at you, but any comments about, you know, potential impact uh, on GDP with COVID going forward? Well, all right. So one thing I'm and we talked about this the last time we were on air together is, 
you know, maybe the market was right all along. And I think that's the, what maybe you were alluding to. And, and the, what we said was, you know, earnings projections, meaning analysts saying, I think the earnings are going to be this in the future. They're an analyst, they're a projection. They're not a certainty. They've had to be, uh, they kept having to be revised upward. And so, you know, a lot of people said, well, it's crazy. The market's trading at 3000. It wasn't so crazy in hindsight because earnings came up. On COVID, though, yeah, I, I went back and I, I you know, I looked at uh, the the sort of the curve chart from the 2018 Spanish flu, and not like I mean, what the heck do 1918, I know? 1918, I think you mean. 1918, yeah, there you go. Yeah, there you yeah, go. Yeah. So, I think the the 18 Spanish flu may have been the uh, a soccer reference to that I could make that only one person would understand. Anyway, so 1918. It started in, in, I think, February and March of, of 1918, and it ended in April of 1920. And, you know, in the U.S., pretty much February was when, you know, we started seeing, you know, there could have been cases earlier. So if you trace that, you say, okay, maybe April. Again, non, I have no medical training whatsoever. I did watch ER for a number of years, right? So I also think, though, it does seem, I listened to some of the FDA testimony, um, the advisory committee, and I thought one thing they, they said that was kind of interesting is they're, they're sort of more getting, uh, some of the doctors more resigned to the fact that, um, you know, the vaccine alone will not cause herd immunity because it, it now appears that it, you, know, you can still get it with the vaccine. I'm quoting some of what they said. So I don't know. I mean, I guess it comes down to COVID didn't cause a recession. The lockdown caused the recession. And so we need to go back and think if there's going to be an economic impact, and we're just talking the economic impact, there's tons of other impacts, as you know, Jay, but it's really a question of, do we go back into a lockdown? And if we don't, I don't think it stops earnings, Jay, and I don't think it stops the market. Yeah, agreed. We're we're on the same page on that point. I'm with you. By the way, uh, I did look at my notes. I, you know, I didn't update I, people. You you know, I I've I spent probably a whole Sunday creating a, a spreadsheet with historical uh, market returns based upon who's in power. You know, whether it's all Democrats or Republicans. Uh, surprisingly, real GDP change average annual for Obama was only one point six percent. Interestingly enough, though, the compounded annual growth rate for the markets was 14.28%. Um, so we haven't had sustained growth over 3% since Reagan and Carter, believe it or not. Oh, Clinton. Well, listen, I'll take 14% a year. That's good market returns. We'll take that, right? Yeah. Clinton, like, Clinton was 3.9%. That's the last really big number, uh, average annual growth, real growth. Growth rate. Yeah, Bush two point two. I haven't updated Trump's. Um, I don't know where his his was. Anyway, it doesn't matter. Let's move on to uh, uh, to another area, and let's bring this back to the markets. Jay, you were quoted yesterday. Speaking of headlines in MarketWatch.com, in an article where you made reference to September being the worst month. Jay, I thought it was sell in May and go away. Is that not the case? Well, uh, when you look at the average return for each month isolated over the past you know, 90 plus years, 
September by far is the worst month when it comes to the average S&P return. Using the S&P as kind of the guideline here. Um, it averages a negative 1%. Um, most months average positive. <laughs> September averages negative. Uh, it's also the only month, Derek, that has uh, a losing batting average or win ratio, right? So 50, that number is 55% of the time. September is lower. There's no other month that has a greater than 50% losing rate or loss rate than September. And so, yeah, you know, September just brings a little chop. You just should just be ready for that. Um, you know, the, it, it also actually had the largest single uh, down month in history, too. I believe it was 1931. Uh, and I'll grab the number in a moment. But with the, the, my point is that, you know, as you, you get a little um, – you, you get a little, I guess, fatigue in the market um, as you're, uh, as kind of you're getting, you know, through the summer and getting ready for, you know, earnings, which you will start to see in a few weeks here, and you know, beginning in the second week of October. So it just ends up being a little bit of a fatigue in the market, and you know, it's not unusual for uh, investors to take some profits off the table in those kind of situations, uh, but. You know, all that being said, to me, even though September has the worst batting average and on average is the worst month, I still think October is the scariest month. Right? Some of the largest single day drawdowns have happened in October. Um, and, you know, nothing you know, tells me that that uh, we're going to be less volatile going forward. Right. Volatility is up. We saw quite a big move this last week with the, uh, the dip from Monday. Um, I, I think, you know, we're. we're we're going to have a little rough waters here uh, in September, possibly. And then, you know, we're probably going to have a little chop in October as well. Just historically speaking, I did take a look and tried to see if there was a uh, any st statistical significance of a down September leading to a down October. There really isn't. Uh, it seems pretty random, uh, the, the October and September's. And many, many times you can have a down September followed by a down October. So, you know, when you just look at the historical averages, September's, you know, got the worst batting average. It's down, you know, more than any other month. But to me, when I when I look at the actual worst single days, October is the one that takes the cake. Yeah, I mean, when you look and uh, I'm looking at your data that you, that you shared uh, with me, that the analysis you did, and you went back to, I think this was 1928 um, is, uh, is, I think, where you went back to. Yeah, I mean, and, and to put this in context, so September only forty five percent of the time was the market went up. Negative one point oh three percent was the average across all of those years for every September. And I mentioned before, you know, everyone, and I had somebody say this to me once. They said, "I, I want to sell everything." I said, why? He said, well, everybody knows you sell in May and go away. May, according to your analysis, um, it's slightly down, but 59% of the time you have a winning month. But June and July, July was actually, is that the highest average month? It is. Uh, you know, it's January slightly better than July, or July is up 60% of the time, January 62 and you get a little bit more of a push in November, which is up 61% of the time. But between January, July, and... But the average return, right? The average return. 
Oh, you're, you're right. The average return is, is the highest. Yes, at 1.6% per month on average. Yeah, so if you're selling in May and going away, you missed the best month of the year. So, yeah, I mean, I think everyone thinks about October and, uh, you know, we'll show our age a little bit. When I start, started in the markets, it was, you know, I wasn't in the markets in October of 87, but in the early 90s, it was still only, hey, that only happened not that long ago, right? And now I think more and more investors, certainly, I mean, that's not their their memory of, of markets being really bad. It's probably 2008. But yeah, I, I also noticed, you know, you mentioned volatility. Let's go back to that point. I think I saw a chart, I, I can't find it now, that uh, on average, the VIX is much higher in the fall than it is at any other period in the month on average. And I think your data here also plays that out. I don't know if you have any thoughts on, you mentioned volatility going forward. Uh, maybe we can talk about volatility a little bit. Yeah, that's a topic we like uh, uh, like to talk about, especially as option traders, option investors. Um, yeah, what volatility, uh, implied volatility versus historic, right? There's really two kinds. One is a projection. One is what actually happened. I like to use the my Google GPS, uh, my Google Maps is kind of the uh, as, as the explanation here, right? When Google says it's going to take you 20 minutes to get somewhere, but it took you, you know, only 15, your actual realized time to travel was different than the projected. Well, generally speaking, the market does project higher volatility in the fall, and that 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 does occur, but usually it's over projecting, meaning the implied volatility or the you know, the planned volatility over the next 30 days ends up being higher than what actually occurs. And so that's an interesting dynamic when it comes to volatility, not just what the market is anticipating, but what it actually gets. Um, by the way, that's not unusual. Most months, that's the case. The market seems to always be waiting for the next shoe to drop. Um, but in the fall, to me, it seems that if you're going to harvest volatility, those are some some good months for you because typically it can end up being a little higher. Um, Derek, it makes me think we should probably just do another study and look at, you know, actual first day of the month projected versus, you know, end of month, what happened and do a little comparison against that month by month. I, I think what, if I had to take something away from that and, and let's, let's bring it to this year specifically, um, we have had elevated projected volatility without the volatility of the markets. We've yet to have a down 5% close off of an all-time high, yet volatility, just yesterday, I think I saw 27, right, or two days ago, 27, 28. I mean, that, that is more like an environment where you have, you know, one and a half, 2% moves every day, and that's just not happening. So it's, it's um, the market feels like it's waiting for something to happen, yet it continues to get, at least the options market, I should say, it continues to get disappointed by the lack of anything significant coming out. It's a good reminder of we have a term in economics, uh, you know, all else equal. Do you remember the Latin term for that, Jay? I don't. You're making me feel silly because I don't know what it oh, is. Well, hang on. I got, I got to make sure. Uh, what is it? <laughs> no, no. It's ceteris um, paribus. Ceteris paribus. All, right. All, I don't all use other things enough. being equal. Um or all else unchanged. And, and where I'm going with this before I deviated down the, uh, uh, trying to remember the Latin phrase for it. But if, if you 
teach economics, it's, it's, it's classic. It's always in, in the textbook and it's front and center. And it's the idea, if you're looking at two different things, you say all else equal, meaning you're only looking at one thing. I bring this up, Jay, because the, the fact that we haven't had a 5% correction, the fact that we've had little or no realized volatility in the markets, it reminds me of 2017. And But the difference is volatility remains elevated and all else is not equal. We are still in the midst of COVID. And so that was the, the, the roundabout point I was, I was going to make, Jay. I think there's a COVID premium in the market despite realized volatility not being there. I don't know if you've, you've been thinking of it that way, but that's the way I look at it. Oh, yeah. I mean, if, if you looked at just two charts between 2017 and 2021, um, slow and steady up and to the right is how the market has moved, you know, higher over time without any real big dips. Um, but you're right, the environment has been dramatically different. Um, you mentioned the COVID premium in the options market. I think there's uh, uh, the, the threat of, um, you know, the rate change by the Fed has been kind of looming there, right? Uh, that was not as apparent in 2017. And I'm going to throw one other factor out there that uh, one of our esteemed colleagues will remind us of is that with the you know, adoption of uh, crypto and Bitcoin onto a lot of companies' balance sheets. There is uh, there's a bit in volatility just because Bitcoin is being held by some pretty decent sized companies, and as that changes, it changes a company's value. And so, while it's not necessarily generating earnings uh, for companies, it may, and they have some uh, some tie to it. But but let me take that back. You could look at, say, Coinbase, for example, right? Dramatically tied to the price of crypto, right? And so there are stocks now in the indices that have some component associated with crypto. And so I think between those three, three things, COVID, rates, and this little bit of crypto premium, you've got additional volatility despite it not being a realized uh, but, you know, it's not realizing that actual volatility that was projected. You know, we we talked on our uh, investment committee meeting. Uh, of course, we we uh, not only go over tactics and strategy and and uh, uh, a, a lot of mundane stuff, you know, about uh, the builds and our, our various hedging strategies, but we like to go around the room and just, you know, go through topics. One of the things, and I wonder if, if this is embedded, but I, I don't think it's adding a, any extra embed into the volatility. And that's, you know, the debt ceiling. And at the end of September, you need to either pass a budget or you need to do a continuing resolution. There's the infrastructure bill, the uh, the budget bill, which uh, it's a budget bill, but then contains, you know, whatever parties in power, their wish list for a budget. I don't know, Jay. I mean, I, I think it's very unlikely, although I won't put it past politicians to do the ultimate dumbest thing and let us default on our debt. But um, typically, this gets resolved, even if it gets resolved very late. Although we did see volatility at the end of 2018 during the, uh, surprisingly, the longest government shutdown ever, 35 days. Yeah, I I think you're right that it, this isn't the first time we've had to deal with it and every time we have dealt with it and it may bring some market uh, market fluctuation, um, you know, end of 2018. I remember that we had a period of uh, might have been 2014, right? Uh, uh, 
there, there's also a tattooing issue. So, you know, I, Derek, I think it's, it's, it's always there. I, I certainly don't think it's built priced into the market yet. It seems a little early uh, for it to be there. And I think, um, <laughs> I won't, maybe I shouldn't trust that we'll get it resolved, but uh, it is not something we haven't experienced before and haven't dealt with solving in the past. So I think it will get resolved. I don't know how much it will really impact uh, uh, you know, broader based corporate earnings, but you start holding back, you know, government workers' paychecks, they're going to spend less money. Yes, that typically is, uh, if you knew nothing about economics, less money means you spend less. Uh, I'll give a I'll give a prediction, Jay, if, if, uh, and I will be wrong most likely, but I think, so the, there's a lot of machinations behind the scenes with politics that, um, would bore most of our listeners. Uh, maybe a few would be very interested in, and stay on, but, uh, this, this bill, uh, if they just do a clean, let's raise, or let's do a continuing resolution. So remember, you don't have to actually pass a budget. <laughs> You know, like corporations, they have to pass a budget. Imagine the shareholders if a corporation came out and said, you don't, well, we didn't pass a budget. We're just going to go with last year's. But that's what that's what you can do. Uh, you do need 60 votes in the Senate to get around a filibuster. But on the debt ceiling specifically, uh, you, could, uh, you could have a situation where uh, the Democrats are pass it with 50 plus one plus, you know, the vice president, Vice President Harris. And the Republicans just don't filibuster. And the political reason for doing that would be they put it all, you know, hey, all of you voted for this, right? They do that all the time. And, you want it, you got it. Yeah. and the, But the continuing your resolution too, um, you know, that got passed when Trump was in office and you had uh, a non-controlled House. So the Democrats controlled the House. And guess what? They passed a continuing resolution. So, because it's one of those things, whoever is the one to not vote for the continuing resolution is the one that's put people out of jobs and politically. So I think this stuff gets done, uh, but I think you're right. Typically, uh, you know, maybe in a week or so, and, you know, I haven't spent the time looking at the options market, but um, never underestimate the uh, politicians to, to make things more complicated. Uh, speaking of complicated, Jay, you, you did say that, uh, uh, September is the worst month. And of course, we don't want our audience to think I should sell everything right now. And you said October was the scariest month. Um, and again, uh, it's not just because Halloween, but I think this brings us to another spin the the wheel. And why not stay close to home, uh, give our listeners a little preview of something that's coming out or will be out by the time uh, you're listening to this. And that's, we have an article coming out on the ZegaFinancial.com site. If you go there and click in the news, uh, the title of the article is Everything You Think You Know About Hedging Is Wrong. Uh, Jay, they shouldn't sell in today or shouldn't sell in October um, because they can be hedged. But Jay, not every hedge is created equal. And so I thought maybe we'd, we'd go through some of the, the myths. It's tough to say, actually, as I, th I was thinking about saying it. Um, we are from the East Coast, New York, New Jersey. So uh, myth sometimes is something we, uh, we conflate, but Jay, I, th I think let's, it'd be helpful. Uh, I'd like to go through these and maybe we'll start with, uh, uh, diversification. Jay, diversification, as long as you're diversified, you are hedged, right? Correct or no? 
That is the myth, Derek. And I would say, no, you're not necessarily protected because of uh, diversification. It doesn't fully insulate a portfolio when there is, you know, a systemic market event, right? If you consider the 08-09 recession, also known as the Great Recession, financial crisis, um, in those situations, everything went down. You look at COVID, the COVID crash, uh, everything went down, right? If It didn't matter if you were in utilities and materials versus, you know, tech or discretionary. It didn't matter. There was a flight to safety. There was a fearful exit uh, and diversification would not, would not have helped you. Um, what about bonds? Well, guess what? In those scenarios as well, the exception of treasuries, you saw investment grade debt and you saw uh, high yield debt also run into a problem. And actually, they ran into a liquidity problem too, right? So it made it even harder to get out of those positions. And so, you know, no, I would say diversification does not mean you are protected, Derek. Yeah. I mean, when I look and yeah, I mean, investment grade corporate bonds. So this is uh, in my book, Broken Pie Chart, available now on Amazon. Of course, you can get Jay Pestercelli's book, Buy and Hedge. They are fantastic Halloween gifts. I would recommend picking up multiple copies and the kids will be your, they, your house will be the favorite. But I, I did some research on this. I'm just looking at the book from October of 07 to March of 09. Looks like investment grade corporate bonds were down about 13%. High yield was down 40%. And as you said, the seven to 10 year treasuries were up 13 and a half percent. To follow this a little bit further though, Jay, you mentioned all the different sectors were down. Materials were down, uh, what is this, 56%. The S&P was down, you know, about the same from peak to trough. And what about countries? Okay, well, you go to Europe. Now, that was down. Uh, this, uh, I have the different glasses on for the screen, not the book, but, you know, about 64%. China down over 60, emerging markets 60. So anyway, that's the data that... Um, in the worst time when you needed diversification the most, it failed you, Jay. Um, so that it completely backs up what you're saying. Yeah. All right, Derek. Let, let me let me throw another myth at okay. you uh, for you to to give me your opinion on. Um, what about stop orders? Right. Oh, We're told, you know, if I have stop orders in the market, don't they protect me, and I should be hedged, right? So stop orders, I would say if you are a day trader, and by the way, I did an episode on this, uh, 99% of day traders do not make money, but that's, I'll put a link to that. Uh, yeah, I think on, on very short-term trading, stop orders absolutely are appropriate. They can help out traders. The challenge though is for longer-term traders, there's really two issues. Number one is markets can gap down. Let's say something bad happened overnight and the market gap down, you know, 15% uh, or something like that, and you had a stop order 5% below the market. Well, the market gaps, so you're no longer going to get out at just, you know, 3 to 5% down. Uh, if you have a stop market order, you sell at whatever it is the next day. If there's a, a stop limit order, which means, hey, if it goes below that price, then trigger a limit order, you might never get out. The other challenge, though, is, Jay, as you know, uh, and we taught a lot of traders over, over the years, especially at our time at TD Ameritrade, stop orders tend to be placed at exactly the wrong spot, meaning 
a place that the market is easy to get to, a support area, you get stopped out and only go back up. And I think, Jay, it also begs the question, and I'll ask you, um, great, you get stopped out. So when do you get back in, right? That's the challenge. Yeah, it's it's not only the exit price, but it's the it's the re-entry price that ends up being very difficult. Um, you know that I think that actually leads to the to maybe another myth about investing, Derek, which is market timing, right? Well, I'll just I'll get out when things look bad, and I'll get back in when things look good, or whatever your rationale for timing the market is. I mean, wouldn't why wouldn't that protect you, Derek? Just market timing. Most active managers don't beat the S&P index 500 index over time. So why should any individual, and I say this with a smile, think that you can join that elite club and do that? Um, you've got to be right twice on the entry, on the exit. And we know that a lot of investors, they might get out and think, okay, I'm going to get out because the market's going to go down. We saw people in cash from 2009 all the way 2015. We saw people get out in, you know, April of, of 2020 and, and miss out on, on a lot of the thing. And I think the, the Peter Lynch quote, more money is lost by investors preparing for corrections than in corrections themselves, is still very applicable. Um, Jay, market timing is difficult. It's uh, only very few people can do it. And not many people can do it over the long term, for sure. Yeah, I would agree. Um, I, one point on this, just referencing a previous podcast that we had done, Derek, where we talked about what happens if you just miss the best or two best days of the year. And guess what? Quite often, uh, by the way, the answer to that is you'll lag by about 6% a year. And if you compound that out, you end up being you know negative over time just by missing you know the two best days out of the year. Um, you know when typically the best days of the year are, Derek? When's that? <laughs> They're right after the worst days of the year. <laughs> Naturally. It's today. It's today's the best day of the year. I'm kidding. Um, no, but the, the it's, hey, when everybody goes, okay, that was it. Matt, it's We're all fearful. Let's sell. The reason the market is dropping so much is because everybody is selling. The best days can follow those worst days. And so, you know, you might have endured the worst day and you got out at exactly the wrong time and the best day followed it. And you're just going to hurt returns over time. Jay, this brings us to our next myth, which is covered calls are a protective hedging strategy. Oh boy. I know you want to take this one. Oh boy. (laughs) (laughs) Look, uh, for option traders, options 101 is always selling covered calls, right? It's one of the easiest strategies to get your mind wrapped around, hey, if I'm holding a stock, why not sell a call against it and get a little extra premium? And while you can generate some additional profit, that premium received is really only you know a small or nominal reduction of the downside risk, right? If you have a hundred dollar stock and you sold calls for two bucks, you're not really protected at all. Yeah, you just maybe you made two extra dollars, but you know that's that is not that is not a hedge, right? And add to the fact that you're probably limiting your upside capture. So again, you get to miss out on the higher runs. Uh, and uh, you haven't really protected yourself on the downside. Now, listen, there are tactics around covered calls that you can use to continue to capture the upside. But, you know, now we're past options 101, right? It gets a little more complicated. Um, and these days, premiums are even you know lower on the call side than when interest rates are higher. We probably could do a whole podcast about interest rates in relationship to option pricing, Derek. Maybe maybe that won't be so interesting. But my, my point is right now, 
uh, and most of the time, covered calls do not provide protection. They are not a hedge. They're just a little extra premium on top of your stock price. I think one of the the things too with covered calls is, let's say if somebody, you know, the market sells off and they say, okay, let, let's give an example. Market sells off in, in March of 20 into April. It starts to recover a little bit and somebody says, okay, I'm going to sell covered calls, bring in a little bit of, you know, extra premium. But then the market blows through their their call price and they miss out on the next 20% or something like that. I mean, covered calls, and by the way, they're, they're not bad. I think the point you're making is there's just, there's a little more strategy involved than you think, but it can cause people to miss out. And I think the the tactical side of this is much greater than people realize than the whole, hey, you know, I mean, I th- I think that's a that's a big point, and I'll get your thoughts. But then the other thing too is the reason why these are are done early on. It's like you're you know, if you own a hundred shares of stock and you sell a covered call, you're not going to get blown out. So you're not going to. You know, it's not a a risky thing per se, but it's certainly there's a lot more to it, Jay. Yeah, for sure, for sure, for sure. And I think we could probably. Talk a lot about covered calls. When to do it? When is the when is the time to roll them? You know, probably there's plenty that we. Can- I think we. I think you just booked yourself on an episode. Everything you know about covered calls is wrong. Excellent. Nothing more than I, <laughs> that I want to talk about is row and covered calls. Uh, l- let me let me throw one at you, Derek, uh, uh, which is uh, I think near and dear to your heart. What about if I'm using bonds? Right? Don't bonds protect me? Uh, isn't that a hedge because, you know, stocks and bonds seem to move opposite. Aren't I protected if I'm holding bonds in my portfolio? If you own treasuries, you have been in the past. The question is, bonds are, 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 have a relationship, an inverse relationship to interest rates. You know, we like to say it's the seesaw bonds, interest rates go up, bond prices go down. The challenge is, there's something called duration risk. And it's a fancy way for saying if interest rates go up, let's say by 100 basis points or one full percent, what should I expect my bonds to go down relative to that jump? The challenge now, as everybody I think knows, is interest rates are really low. And so you're just not getting, um, you're not getting a lot of interest. You're not getting a lot of quote unquote payments for holding those bonds. And at the same time, if interest rates were to rise precipitously from here, um, unlike the late 1970s, you're not getting 10% a year on your money. You're getting you know, 1.3 on, on the treasury. So uh, Bill Gross had said, uh, this is a couple of years ago, that bonds would have to go substantially negative to match the 40-year bull run they've enjoyed since the early 80s. So Jay, uh, I think it's it's worked in the past, and here's an example of where we have to be careful about using past performance. As we always say, past performance is not indicative of future results. But I think you're, it's it's a couple things. It's your carrying cost. It's the rate of change in the value of the bonds based upon changes in interest rates has never been higher. And there's other ways of of doing this. So I don't know if you have any thoughts on those, Jay. Yeah, I mean, other ways of uh, of of actually, you know, generating alternative income, maybe, right? Use different strategies. Uh, you have to kind of get outside your comfort zone a little bit if you're looking for that, you know, 
income piece, but it's hard to find. You know, one of the things we look at all the time is where can I find the easiest three, four percent? But, you know, bonds can lose three to four percent very easily with with smaller moves in rates these days. So, you know, so we go elsewhere. Right. We go to the options market. And, um, you know, all of these things that we just saw, these five reasons we just rattled off. Right. Whether it's the diversification, the stop orders, market timing, covered calls or even fixed income. All of those um, myths, you know, they, they still don't mean you should not try to protect yourself. Right. We just debunked those. The way that we look at investing is to be hedged, right? We use options for protection. Um, so whether you're creating floors or buffers in your portfolios, you can still be invested. You know, I don't, Derek, if uh, if, if you were to make 1.3% for the next 10 years, is that, you know, appropriate for your goals and your growth? Probably not, right? Bonds are going to be difficult for you to hit your growth targets. So you're forced you're forced to be into the market in your stock market and you're forced to take equity risk if you want to have any kind of growth. Heck, with inflation around three, four percent, if you don't invest, you're losing. You're, you're losing buying power with your cash over time. And so you, you're forced to go into the equity market. But maybe you don't want the kind of risk associated with a market that could drop 35 percent in four weeks like we saw in 2020. Well, for us, that solution ends up being. Uh, is being hedged, right? And using uh, protected strategies. And without sounding too much like a commercial, we do think that it is probably a solution for most investors in this current environment where you capture some of the upside of the market, a good portion of the upside of the market, but you actually limit your risk at the same time, which is really the whole point of what we've been talking about is how you can protect yourself yet still get, grab some growth. I think it goes back to what we were talking about with with the months of the year. I mean, September, you know, should I sell in September? What about October coming up? You just told me. I mean, it goes back to we already said you 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 know, trying to time the market is difficult. We haven't even talked I mean, the the idea of taxes that would trying to time the market. That's a whole other discussion. So, I think I think the thing here is it for investors Having a real hedge on a portfolio, not something that you you hope will work or that you think has worked in the past that might work in the future, it really just you know lets the market come to you. And I think Jay, you made the point early on, like the market was right, but um, and heck, even um, actually, let me pull this up. There was a survey. I mean, I'll, I'll, this is another thing you're starting to see these surveys that come out. And the survey said something like, this is on CNBC, what kind of market risk are you willing to accept for yourself and your clients? Um, 76% of, I think this was advisors said, now is the time to be very conservative in the stock market versus 24%. Um, the crowd is normally wrong, not always. But yeah, I think it comes back to, that's the value. That's the value of just being able to, to just stick and look, if you're going to get some of the, the upside, a, good, a very good percentage of the upside, but it's the sleep at night portfolio, right? I mean, this is, uh, I, I don't know if you saw that survey there, Jay. I, di I didn't know people were that bearish right now. Oh, yeah. I have definitely seen that survey before. But, you know, we know there's a lot of uh, uh, eyeballs that get attracted to, you know, fearful things. And I'm sure as you do, Derek, I get uh, cl uh, clients who send me articles and say, oh my gosh, is this something we should be worried about? And it's, you know, I think the last one I got was 
somebody from the UN was saying this is the worst status of the globe that we've ever seen. I was like, yeah, okay, like I get it, but we still have we have goals we have to deliver, right? So you know, there can be a lot of noise and and fear sells, but for us, it's it's not that. You know, I'll go back to the article you mentioned I was quoted in. Um, you know, we I talked about September expected volatility, but I also said in that article we put work. We put money to work on Monday, right? We invested in Monday, and it wasn't a market timing thing. It wasn't we were buying a dip. It was, uh, listen, it's part of our process. We don't time the market. I know we're protected, so have the confidence to invest. Um, I'm just taking a look at the monthly numbers here for October's, and I said it can be scary. It also can be the best month out of the year, 2011, 2015. It was like the third best month in 20. 17. So, you know, it's not like avoid October. October's got a 59% winning average, right? It's just that it can be fearful, not just for Halloween. There, I, and I can appreciate that, um, you know, having your book being uh, given out on Halloween makes sense. I, I've been giving it out for, as a Columbus Day gift, which is coming up <laughs> okay. shortly. So just in case you're looking for an additional yeah. opportunity. Uh, for you gifts, you, buy, you buy one Perfect. for each holiday, holiday I, I suppose. Uh, there you go. Thank you. Your family will yeah. appreciate it. Uh, yeah. Well, yeah. Back, back to your point, right? So staying invested, not trying to time the market, running with a regular investment plan. Even if you're going to have some dicey months, they're going to come. They're going to come. You know, it, 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 the sun doesn't shine every day and that's okay. And you manage through that. But guess what? Most months, the market is up more often than it's down. If people want more information on what the heck we've just been talking about, if- as far as strategies and, and hedging strategies and different things, you can find those on zegafinancial.com. And uh, there is a very convenient button uh, on the, uh, the site uh, called products. And there you'll see uh, a number of different things. Uh, also, if you want to follow uh, appearances, media appearances and things for either Jay or myself, or mostly Jay uh, these days, uh, there's a, an in the news and and that article will be in under in the news uh, part of a blog posting as well where we do go into the myths of hedging by the way jay I, I left gold out of there and but gold has had 20 year runs where i think a negative real return in other words it was a paperweight not a an asset but uh, maybe we'll leave that for another discussion uh, another day Maybe a, a different. Maybe we'll, we'll wrap that into our covered calls episode. You covered calls and goals. Yeah, I don't know. There you go. <laughs> seems, seems like but a winner. Gotta, you know. You know what else we got to do? I, I know you've always has the the rule. Uh, we don't discuss gamma on, uh, of course, one of the option Greeks on here. But have you you seen all the stuff that they come out with the new Greeks now? It's Vanna and Voma and uh, oh boy, yeah, Charms the other one. Yeah. Um, if you, I mean, I guess if you want your subscriber rate to go down, that sounds like a great idea. Yeah. My feeling is. All right. <laughs> if that's if that's a level of work you're doing in the options market, it's probably worth a phone call because we'd love to talk about them with you. But not everybody wants to hear about Vanna. Speaking of subscribers, as we wrap up, uh, rather than wasting time rating and reviewing, go ahead and, and subscribe. But go ahead and pass this uh, these episodes on to someone that you think might find them valuable uh, or someone who at least uh, would be curious. Uh, That's how the audience grows. The audience continues to grow. So thank you. And uh, we have yet Jay to get a listener in Gibraltar. I'm still waiting, but uh, maybe one day if you're a Gibraltar listener, I told you I'll, I'll send you a book. 
I'll send you a free book, our first Gibraltar listeners. So uh, send me an email. All right, Jay, thanks again for uh, coming on. And uh, I think we'll we'll call it good here as we go through the, uh, the topics. And uh, I think we'll be, I don't know if we're scheduled again, probably another two weeks or so or three weeks. We'll, we'll have you back on. So Jay, thanks again. Appreciate it. Yep, you got it, Derek. Great being here. Good conversation. See you, everyone.